Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. The Anatomy Act of 1832, an act of Parliament of the United Kingdom, giving freer license to doctors, teachers of anatomy, and bona fide medical students to dissect donated bodies, was enacted in response to the illegal trade in corpses by medical schools. It was common practice, particularly in the 19th century, to remove the recently interred from their final resting place for the purposes of selling the remains to doctors so that they could learn more about the inner workings of the human body and train others in medical practice. Of course, doctors couldn't be seen skulking around cemeteries late at night, so they relied on the expertise of body snatchers, otherwise known as resurrection men. These individuals would dig up bodies, the fresher the better, and bring the remains to medical schools for dissection. The doctors in training got to dissect a human specimen, and the resurrection men were paid for their delivery. Prior to the Anatomy Act, the only legal way to obtain corpses for anatomical purposes was through the prison system, such as it was. Those punished for harsher crimes like murder would often be sentenced to dissection, and, upon execution, their bodies would be delivered to private anatomy schools to further their studies. Unfortunately, by the 19th century, very few people were being sentenced to capital punishment, meaning that the number of bodies available was very low. Medical schools continued to expand, and as many as 500 corpses might be needed annually to fulfill their needs. Authorities didn't see body snatching as anything more than a misdemeanor, and so the offender wasn't executed. Many saw this as a means to make a living, and the business was profitable. The police generally ignored what they considered to be a necessary evil, so resurrection men would take to the cemeteries and graveyards, seeking the recently deceased, in order to line their pockets by lantern light. Hello, Odd Pod listeners, and welcome back to another episode. This week, we tag along to the local cemetery with the Resurrection Men, men who dug up fresh corpses for the purposes of medical study. We'll examine the history of body snatching, the purpose and practice, and learn about Burke and Hare, two notorious murderers who were also body snatchers and grave robbers. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you all know that this is episode 11. The Identity Podcast has 12 episodes per season, and the final episode for this season is fast approaching. Episode 12 features that unforgettable interview I mentioned at the start of this season, and I think it's a great note to end on. 
Season 6 will be a little delayed, as I've got some other projects that need my attention, but I'm hoping that the downtime will be no more than six weeks. I hope you'll still continue to subscribe so you'll know when the new episodes are available, and that you'll continue to follow me on social media, as I'll still be posting things that I hope will bring your odd hearts much joy. Also, I'd like to thank 42 Books for publishing my narrative nonfiction essay, Radium, in the most recent issue of Satan Speaks. It's a pleasure to have my work featured alongside so many talented people. If you'd like to pick up a copy of that issue, I'll drop a link in the show notes. The publication was unpaid, but I think it's important to support lit rags as I run one myself. If you're a writer who specializes in horror, the odd, or general weirdness, please send me your work for consideration. Submissions can be sent to corevinc at gmail.com. That's C-O-R-E-V-I-N-K at gmail.com. Please review submission guidelines at corev.inc. C-O-R-E-V dot I-N-K. The summer issue drops July 1st, so there's still time to get your subs in before the window slams shut. And now, on with the show. The theft of human remains was so common in the 19th century that it was pretty common for relatives and friends of the deceased to watch over a body prior to and after burial. Iron coffins and bars that covered the grave site were frequently used so the family members could rest easy, knowing that the body of their relative wouldn't be stolen in the night. Oh, and before we go any further, those iron bars, they weren't installed to prevent zombies or vampires from rising from the grave. They're called mort safes, designed to protect graves from being disturbed. From Wikipedia, quote, the mort safe was invented in 1816. These were iron or iron and stone devices of great weight in many different designs. Often they were complex, heavy iron contraptions of rods and plates that were padlocked together. Examples have been found close to all Scottish medical schools. A plate was placed over the coffin and rods with heads were pushed through holes in it. These rods were kept in place by locking a second plate over the first to form extremely heavy protection. It would be removed by two people with keys. They were placed over the coffins for about six weeks and then removed for further use when the body inside was sufficiently decayed. There is a model of a mort safe of this type in Marischal Museum, Aberdeen. Sometimes a church bought them and hired them out. Societies were also formed to purchase them and control their use, with annual membership fees and charges made to non-members." You see, many families couldn't afford heavy table tombstones, vaults, or mausolea. Such things were only affordable to the higher classes. Those who could afford a mort safe went that route. Those who couldn't afford even that resorted to placing pebbles and flowers on graves to detect whether the soil had been disturbed. They would drive branches into the soil to make disinterment more laborious and time-consuming. 
They essentially used whatever was at their disposal to keep the theft from happening. Friends and relatives took turns watching the graves, spending long hours sitting in the cemetery. If they could afford to, some families would hire a man to watch the grave during the night, and watchtowers were erected to shelter the men whose job it was to do this. Some communities used mort safes and employed watchers while others constructed watchtowers to house the watchers during their nightly stays in the cemetery. Of course, they'd only have to hang out in the cemetery until the body began to decay. Then it wasn't fresh enough and it wasn't suitable for dissection. Body snatching was an issue in the UK, but what about here in America? Quote, in the United States, body snatchers generally worked in small groups, which scouted and pillaged fresh graves. Fresh graves were generally given preference since the earth had not yet settled, thus making digging easier work. The removed earth was often shoveled onto a canvas tarp laid by the grave so that the nearby grounds were undisturbed. Digging commenced at the head of the grave, clear to the coffin. The remaining earth on the coffin provided a counterweight, which snapped the partially covered coffin lid, which was covered in sacking to muffle noise, as crowbars or hooks pulled the lid free at the head of the coffin. Usually the body would be disrobed and the garments would be thrown back into the coffin before the earth was put in place. Resurrectionists have also been known to hire women to act the part of grieving relatives and to claim bodies of dead at poorhouses. Women were also hired to attend funerals as grieving mourners. Their purpose was to ascertain any hardships that the body snatchers might later encounter during disinterment. Bribed servants would sometimes offer body snatchers access to their dead master or mistress lying in state. The removed body would be replaced with weights. Although medical research and education lagged in the United States compared to medical colleges' European counterparts, the interest in anatomical dissection grew in the United States. Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, and several medical schools were renowned for body snatching activity. All locales provided plenty of cadavers. Finding subjects for dissection proved to be morally troubling for students of anatomy. As late as the mid-19th century, John Gorham Coffin, a prominent, aptly named professor and medical physician, wondered how any ethical physician could participate in the traffic of dead bodies. Charles Knowlton was in prison for two months in the Worcester County Jail for illegal dissection in 1824, a couple of months after graduating with distinction from Dartmouth Medical School. His thesis defended dissection on the rationalist basis that value of any art or science should be determined by the tendency it has to increase happiness or to diminish the misery of mankind. Knowlton called for doctors to relieve public prejudice by donating their own bodies for dissection. The body of Ohio Congressman John Scott Harrison, son of William Henry Harrison, was snatched in 1878 for Ohio Medical College and discovered by his son John Harrison, brother of President Benjamin Harrison. 
Large gated centralized cemeteries, which sometimes employed armed guards, emerged as a response to grave robbing fears. Gated high security cemeteries were also a response to the discovery that many old urban and rural burying grounds were found to be practically empty of their human contents when downtown areas were redeveloped and old pioneer cemeteries moved, as in Indianapolis." End quote. There may have been ways to discourage resurrectionists from stealing grandma from her grave, but these thieves were a crafty sort. The process went fairly quickly, and there were several methods for removal. One method involved digging at the head end of a grave with a wooden spade, wooden tools were quieter than metal ones, and putting a rope around the body. Once the rope was secure, it was just a matter of pulling the body out through the hole. Graves were shallow in many cemeteries way back when, so it was a fairly easy task. Another method was to cut a square of turf about the size of a manhole cover out of the ground about 15 to 20 feet from the head of the grave. Corpses were generally buried around four feet below the earth, and a tunnel would be dug to intercept the coffin. The end of the coffin would be pried off, and the corpse would be pulled through the tunnel. Once the turf was replaced, it was impossible to notice any disturbance, and family members checking on their loved ones would be none the wiser. An article in The Lancet, a weekly peer-reviewed general medical journal, stated that a number of empty coffins had been discovered in graveyards in the UK, proving that body snatching was quite frequent. The demand for human dissection grew as more medical schools were established stateside. Between 1758 and 1788, only 63 of 3,500 physicians had studied abroad at the University of Edinburgh Medical School, and the study of anatomy legitimized their positions. Without dissection, how was the medical field any different from homeopathic or botanical studies? The American Medical Association was formed in order to differentiate medicine from these other practices and thereby asserting it as a true science. In 1762, John Morgan and William Shippen Jr. founded a medical department at the University of Pennsylvania. In November of that year, Shippen advertised his lectures about the art of dissecting, injections, etc. in the Pennsylvania Gazette. The cost to attend was five pistoles, a little more than $5.50 USD today. Apparently there was some doubt as to where Shippen got his corpses, as a mob arrived on his doorstep in 1765, claiming he desecrated a burial ground near a church. Although Shippen denied the accusation, claiming he'd only ever used the bodies of suicides, executed felons, and Potter's Field, there was still speculation that Shippen was a body snatcher. Medical students in Boston also struggled with finding specimens for dissection. John Collins Warren Jr., an American surgeon and president of the American Surgical Association, wrote, quote, No occurrences in the course of my life have given me more trouble and anxiety than the procuring of subjects for dissection, end quote. 
Warren's father had encountered similar difficulties in finding subjects during the Revolutionary War when many soldiers died with no relation to claim their remains. He and his friends at Harvard University had started a secret anatomic society called the Spunkers. I don't have any idea where that comes from who performed dissections using cadavers that they procured themselves, likely through body snatching. The dissections that Warren was able to perform gave him the knowledge and experience needed to begin lectures on anatomy in 1781. John Warren Sr. was elected professor of anatomy and surgery when Harvard Medical School was established in November of 1782. Junior, following in his father's footsteps, attended Harvard in 1796 when there were few subjects for dissection. He writes, quote, Having understood that a man without relations was to be buried in the North Burying Ground, I formed a party. When my father came up in the morning to lecture and found that I had been engaged in this scrape, he was very much alarmed. End quote. Warren would later enlist the aid of an old family friend named John Revere, son of Paul Revere, to obtain corpses. Through several connections, the two men were introduced to one James Henderson, who was apparently able to make miracles happen and abracadabra corpses onto dissection tables. Pull a rabbit out of a hat, put a corpse on a dissection table. He was just that magical. Michael Saphole, in A Traffic of Dead Bodies, Anatomy, and Embodied Social Identity in 19th Century America, writes that Warren Jr. attempted to set up a cadaver provision system that mirrored systems already set up in New York and Philadelphia. Quote, If schools or physicians differed over who should get an allotment of bodies, the dispute should be settled by the mayor, a high-reaching conspiracy that resulted in the harvest of about 450 bodies per school year, end quote. Public graveyards were arranged by social and economic standing, but also by race, and many professional body snatchers would find their corpses in the segregated sections of Potter's Field. From Emily Bazelon's Grave Offense, quote, In December 1882, it was discovered that six bodies had been disinterred from Lebanon Cemetery and were en route to Jefferson Medical College for dissection. Philadelphia's African Americans were outraged, and a crowd assembled at the city morgue where the discovered bodies were sent. Reportedly, one of the crowd urged the group to swear that they would seek revenge for those who participated in desecration of the graves. Another man screamed when he discovered the body of his 29-year-old brother. The Philadelphia Press broke the story when a teary elderly woman identified her husband's body, whose burial she had afforded only by begging for the $22 at the wharfs where he had been employed. End quote. Between 1765 and 1884, there were at minimum 25 crowd actions that were documented against medical schools and medical students which eventually led to various acts that would make body snatching a serious offense. One such uprising in April of 1788, called the Doctor's Riot, brought many poor New Yorkers to City Hospital to protest the theft of their loved ones' bodies for medical dissection. 
Supposedly, a young boy had been playing nearby the school and looked into one of the hospital's windows to see his mother's body. She had died very recently, being dissected. The boy claimed that the medical student had lifted the corpse's arm and waved it at him. Completely traumatized, the boy ran to tell his father about the incident, which led to the riot. In this particular instance, seeing that there was a risk of destruction on a massive scale, and even the murder of medical students and doctors alike, authorities stepped in and led searches of local physicians' houses, seeking medical students, professors, and stolen corpses. The mob was satiated for a time, but reassembled at the jail where several medical students were being held for their own safety. It wasn't until militia members joined the defense effort that the mob finally dispersed. Three rioters were killed. So, selling corpses to medical schools was a pretty lucrative business. Generally, no questions were asked, and payment was swift. For many, making fast money like this was alluring, and resurrection men did quite well for themselves, whether the bodies came legitimately or through more nefarious means. Enter Burke and Hare, two men who found a way to exploit the corpse-buying system by committing murder in order to supply the remains for medical research. Now, before we go any further, let's talk a little bit about the difference between grave robbing and body snatching. Body snatching is literally the taking of a corpse. Resurrection men would remove the body from the grave and leave the clothing and any valuables that may have been buried with the individual in the coffin. This was the difference between a misdemeanor and a felony. Grave robbing is essentially taking valuables from the grave to sell for personal gain. Of course, grave robbing and body snatching often went hand in hand, but many resurrection men didn't want to take the chance of being caught in possession of or selling stolen goods. Moving right along. Ben Johnson writes for HistoricUK.com, quote, William Burke and William Hare both originated from the province of Ulster in the north of Ireland and moved to Scotland to work on the Union Canal. Burke having abandoned a wife and two children back in Ireland the pair met and became close friends when Burke moved with his mistress, Helen McDougall, to lodgings in Tanner's Close in the Westport area of Edinburgh. Hare lived on the same street and was running a boarding house there with Margaret Laird, a widower with whom he lived as man and wife, and who was also known as Margaret Hare, even though they were not legally married. The pair's first foray into the world of medical science happened in December of 1827, when one of Hare's tenants, an elderly army pensioner by the name of Old Donald, died of natural causes while still owing four pounds in rent. To cover the man's outstanding debt, the pair weighed his coffin down with tanning bark prior to his funeral and took his body to the medical school at Edinburgh University where they were swiftly pointed in the direction of Professor Robert Knox, a popular anatomy lecturer. Knox paid the duo seven pounds, 10 shillings for Donald's body. Encouraged by the ease with which they'd made this money, the pair struck again in early 1828, 
when another tenant named Joseph became ill. Too impatient to see if Joseph would actually die from his afflictions, Burke and Hare took it upon themselves to help him along, plying him with whiskey, and then suffocating him by covering his mouth and nose while he was forcibly restrained. This became their favored method of execution, as it left the body unmarked and undamaged for the students who were later to dissect the cadavers. In the absence of any further ill tenants, the pair decided to entice victims to the lodging house, preying on Edinburgh's poorest communities who were less likely to be missed or recognized. In total, Burke and Hare are said to have murdered at least 16 people for between 7 and 10 pounds apiece, although the real total is likely to be a lot higher. A local prostitute, Janet Brown, was lucky to escape with her life when she and a friend, Mary Patterson, were invited to stay by Burke. Having excused herself earlier in the evening, Janet returned to find her friend missing and was told Mary and Burke had stepped out. Having waited for her friend to return, Janet eventually decided to leave, having no idea that Mary was lying dead in the next room ready to be taken to Knox and that she herself was the next likely victim. Burke and Hare soon became greedy and no one was safe. An elderly grandmother was killed with an overdose of painkillers, and Hare murdered a blind young grandson by breaking the boy's back against his knee. Even a relative of Helen's, Anne McDougall, was unhesitatingly dispatched. However, with greed came carelessness. A number of Knox's students were said to have recognized Mary and two other sex workers murdered by the pair. Elizabeth Halden and her daughter, who made the unfortunate mistake of calling at the lodging house to inquire after her missing mother. The gossip was exacerbated when the pair brought in a handicapped children's entertainer by the name of James Wilson, who was well known in the city as Daft Jamie. Knox was said to strongly deny the identity of the body, but swiftly removed his head and the deformed foot during the dissection, end quote. Burke was also suspicious that Hare and Margaret were cutting him out of deals that they were making with Knox, so Burke and Helen decided to take in lodgers of their own. Halloween of 1828 marks Burke and Hare's last victim, Marjorie Campbell Doherty. A couple, James and Anne Gray, received an invitation to temporarily stay at Hare's boarding house in order to set the scene for the murder. The Greys were fed a story about Marjorie coming on to Burke once they returned to their original lodging house and became suspicious when they weren't allowed to enter a room in which they'd stored some of their belongings. When the Greys were left alone, they entered the room and found Marjorie's body under the bed. They were offered a bribe of 10 pounds a week to keep quiet, but the Greys refused and reported the murder to police. By the time the police arrived, the body had already been removed and taken to Knox. Burke and Hare, along with Helen, were arrested, but all gave conflicting accounts, with Burke and Hare ultimately blaming each other in a desperate bid to save themselves. Through investigations by police, Knox was found in his lecture hall, and James Gray was able to ID the body as Marjorie, which he was currently dissecting. 
Hare was offered immunity in exchange for his testimony against Burke, and both Burke and Helen were charged with Marjorie Doherty's murder. Burke was also charged with Mary Patterson and James Wilson's murders. Helen was ultimately set free because there was no way for authorities to prove that she was complicit in the murders. Burke was sentenced to death by hanging in front of a cheering crowd of over 25,000 people in January of 1829. His body, in a rather appropriate turn of events, was donated to medical science. If you'd like to visit the final resting place of Burke, you need look no further than Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh. His skeleton is on display along with the death mask of his face and a book bound in his skin. Hare's life mask is also displayed. Hare was released in February of 1829 and disappeared after he'd escaped across the border into England. There are rumors that he was attacked by an angry mob and was thrown into a lime quarry. He survived the incident, but he lived the rest of his life as a blind beggar in London. Helen and Margaret emigrated elsewhere, and Knox, despite the fact that the public was outraged regarding his involvement, was cleared of any wrongdoing. He moved to London to try to salvage his career, but it was in ruins. After the murders, a new word was coined, burking, meaning to smother a victim or commit anatomy murder, and a delightful rhyme began circulating around the streets of Edinburgh, often sung by schoolchildren skipping rope. Up the close and down the stair, in the house with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, knocks the man who buys the beef. Burke and Hare, they were a pair, killed a wife and did not care. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, knocks the inn that buys the beef. Catchy tune, isn't it? That's it for this week, dear listeners. As a little something extra, I've dropped a link into the show notes to an audio version of The Body Snatcher, a short story by Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson. It was first published in the Pall Mall Christmas Extra in December 1884, and its characters were based on criminals in the employ of real-life surgeon Robert Knox. It makes for great bedtime reading. Enjoy! Tune in next week for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod and on Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to those who have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps. <laughs>